you'll turn in your Bibles now to the book of Acts, to look to the Word of God in the book of Acts, chapter 17, where we continue our study in the context of Paul's second missionary journey after having left Philippi, he went to Thessalonica, and then ministered in Berea, and now he comes to Athens. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34. The Word of God reads, Now when Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, What would this idle babbler wish to say? Others? He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious, you're very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription. To an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their, pre- their appointed times and the boundaries of their inhabitation. And they would seek God, that they might, would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, For we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness." Through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. 
But others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's bow together in a word of prayer before we begin our study once again. God in heaven, we give you thanks for your precious word. We pray, God, may you be pleased and may you grant to us insight. May you help us, Father, and open the eyes of our heart. We might once again see great and mighty things from thy word. In Jesus' name. Amen. Some of you already know that I was recently in Washington, D.C. for a few days, uh, just as a brief visit, and spent most of my time visiting museums and places that were open to the public. I didn't go to any of those places that require approval before you get in. You just cannot walk up and walk into any other place that you want to. And so those places I didn't go, such as the White House, which are, is a place that's tough to get in. They have layer upon layer of security, and you just can't knock at the door unless you're wanted, unless you have clearance, unless you have an appointment. But in 2009, July 26, on Sunday... There was a very famous individual who's seven foot one, 325 pounds, named Shaquille O'Neal, who was doing an interview with all of his championship rings on his fingers, having played for the Los Angeles Lakers for many years. He was giving a talk show, or he was giving an interview in a sports radio talk show. And he said to his listeners, quote, when he was in Washington, D.C., Check this out. I've gone in a nice suit. I'm in D.C., paying a visit. I jump out of a cab in front of the White House. I don't use none of my political or law enforcement connections. If I go to the gate and say, hey, I'm in town, I would like to see the president. Do I get in or do I not get in? Unquote. Well, two days later, he actually tried it. And just as he has often rejected those who drive past him to the basket, so too the security guards at the White House rejected him. And later that day, he tweeted, the White House wouldn't let me in. Why? Unquote. Some people don't understand that you just can't barge into the White House, even though the president may be favorable towards basketball and maybe you might be a celebrity. You have to be pre-approved, you have to be pre-screened, you just cannot go and expect the doors to open for you as they might in other places, thinking I'm famous, I'm accomplished, and everyone respects me, so I should be able to go where I so choose to go. But that kind of thing is not uncommon among people who are not Christians when it comes to heaven. They think, well, I'm a good person, I haven't committed any crimes, or I'm not a felon, I should be able to get into heaven on my own deal. I don't need pre-screening. I don't need pre-approval. I can just walk in as many places here. They have a good amount of respect for me simply because I'm a good person. What will happen? Well, 
It will happen the same thing. They'll be turned away, and they will tweet, why? If there are any people who were in Europe at the time of Paul who tried their best to pay their dues in worship and homage to idols, it would have been the Athenians, like the Hindus. They have tens of thousands of gods. Uh, The Hindus have millions of gods, but making offering and making worship to these gods was a part of the Athenian way of life. They, too, though, would have been turned away at the gates of heaven. Paul had recently left Berea with Silas and Timothy behind, traveled 200 miles down to Athens. It was a city that was in the province of Acacia, just like Corinth was, the capital of modern-day Greece. It was a very famous city, known for some of its most famous philosophers, such as Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Zeno, etc. It was the intellectual center of the world at that time. If you were a philosopher, you would have adopted Athens as your home. Very well known. In 146 BC, when Rome conquered Athens, Rome fell in love with all things that were Greek. And so Athens remained a free city at the blessing of Rome. The glow of Athens continued to remain for many years, even though her glory days had passed. Her most famous philosophers were an era of the past, but it was to this city that Paul went that was laden with idols. He there was one who would encounter a city that was very philosophical, very religious, and had an altar that was made to the unknown God. And so we look at his approach here as we see how is it that we can approach? How is it that we can approach those who have a worldview that is supernatural and yet mm, perhaps full of idols? And what does this passage teach us? Well, we look at the context first, at the audience that he preaches to, and we begin in verse 16 in our study. As the audience says here, the Bible tells us that the city was just full of idols. It was a population of some 10,000, yet there were some 30,000 idols, statues of gods in the city, all over the place. One philosopher who was a Greek traveler who lived in the second century said it was easier to meet a god or a goddess than it was to meet a man. Idol after idol after idol Framed in the architecture, wherever you went and looked, you could see an idol. And all of this idolatry provoked the spirit of the Apostle Paul. In fact, the NIV renders it greatly distressed. The word itself conveys an even stronger meaning, for it means to become angry or infuriated. It infuriated Paul. It brought to his heart and soul that Satan had deceived an entire city and put them into the bondage of this idolatry that was so, so blatant. Sacrifices were made to these idols. In actuality, they were made to demons. As 1 Corinthians 10, 19 and 20 tells us when Paul writes to the Corinthians, what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which, are, which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. All of this infuriated Paul. It brought to his own soul 
a great distress. It provoked how he felt. I remember when I was in India, I traveled from Pune, four and a half hours north, to a city called Nashik. Nasik, sometimes it's sometimes said. Four or five hours because I was to preach in a church there. Nasik is one of the four cities in a rotation of cities that celebrate this festival or this religious gathering called the Kumela, which is held at Nasik every 12 years. It is the largest gathering on the face of the earth of people. It is a massive Hindu pilgrimage where Hindus gather in order to bathe in the Ganges River, believing that they would wash away all of their sins. So you'll see people, they'll shave every single hair off of their body and bathe in the Ganges River. In 2014, there were 120 million people over the course of two months that would go into a city and bathe. 2013. That's more than triple the size of Seattle. And I heard that it was called the cities of, city of temples. And I saw when I arrived there, temple after temple and idol after idol, every single street. And you could sense the oppressive darkness that was in the city. You could almost feel that darkness that would cover the city. I remember also feeling similarly when I was in Pune, India, and you would go by certain streets, and, and my, my, my missionary friend Art Nakmer would drive me down, and you would see some of these buildings that were ashrams, in which there would be some guru that would be there, and you would see these Westerners, and they would have their Hindu garb on, and they would be filing into this ashram. And it would just be so upsetting. You would feel like you would just want to run out there and rail against them because they are pandering deception and dragging people away from God. Because here we are as people of God, we are called to be soldiers who fight for what is true for the souls of men and women. And so God hates idolatry. He hates when glory is given to another. As Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. And so, righteously angered was Paul at the idolatry because it angered God. And so what did he do? He went into the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and the marketplaces and he began reasoning with them, with whoever happened to be present, that they might not be deceived and that they might hear the truth. And so some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers were also there. The Epicureans were those who were influential among the upper educated class. They were similar to deists, you know, who believe that God sort of started everything and yet God is distant. Well, they sort of believed something similar where the gods existed, but they were uninvolved in the affairs of man. But they believed that pleasure and the absence of pain, similar to those who had maybe ascribed to Dianetics with pleasure and hedonism were were high on their value list. And then there were the Stoics who had a, a form of uh, 
Greek philosophy. It was very popular in Paul's day. Uh, pantheism, where God is all, and we were free souls, and God is everywhere and in everything, and sort of a new age philosophy, and self-mastery uh, was the greatest virtue, and one can become indifferent, sort of a apathetic, fatalistic kind of philosophy. All of these philosophers that were there, Paul was conversing with them. Some that were God-fearers, some that were Jews, some were their commoners, and others who were Epicureans and Stoics. Many of them undoubtedly worshipped many of these tens of thousands of idols that were there. And they said what? Verse 18. What would this idol babbler wish to say? It's a mockery. That word idol babbler has the image, as John Paul Hill notes, of a bird who's just pecking at grains of, of feed in, in some barn. In other words, they were saying, Paul, here's this guy who's just taking a little here, taking a little there, kind of a tapestry of beliefs. He seems to be spouting this and spouting that, sort of a dilettante of you know, babbling. What is he saying? <coughs> he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities. Some would say, well... You ever talk with somebody like that? People who just seem to spout things? That's what they thought he was doing. That was, the Paul's, that was their impression of Paul. And they, they took him. They took him, it says in verse 19, to the Areopagus. They brought him to the Areopagus, the council of Ares. And here, the hill of Ares, which in Latin is known as Mars Hill. You want to know where the term Mars Hill comes from? It comes from this particular passage here in Latin. Mars Hill, so named because in Greek mythology it's called the Hill of Ares because Ares was believed to be the, of course, Ares was the Greek god of war and it was believed that here he stood trial for the murder of Poseidon's son. And there in the Areopagus, there were philosophers, and they had power. They had jurisdiction over the matters of religion, over the matters of morals, over civil matters. In Roman times, they had considerable power because they were allowed by Rome. Rome loved Athens, and so they allowed Rome, the Athens to rule on many things on its own. And so they brought Paul here, and there he stood before him would be the Theseum or the Doric Temple in front of him, and to the right of him, the upper city, the Acropolis or the Parthenon, and there would be thousands of idols that would be around, and there would be the philosophers of the day, the greatest minds in Greek philosophy in Athens. There he would be brought to be judged, not for a criminal act, but judged for his thoughts and the things that he was trying to communicate. And they asked him, may we know what this new teaching is in which you are proclaiming? And Luke has his own little commentary in verse 21. Now all they did was they spent their time in nothing other than telling and hearing something new. And here we see Paul give a logical presentation of who God is and what God has done and what God desires of them, identifying with them and connecting with the ideas that they had and launching into the good news. We learn here how we can connect with people and how we can bring it to people. Paul here doesn't quote Hebrew scripture to them as it would have been unknown to them. These are Gentiles who are unfamiliar probably with that. But in fact, he quotes from their own poets and he proclaims to them uncompromisingly biblical truth. So we see that beginning in verse 22. <clears throat> Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, 
men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. And he launches into a masterpiece of communication, as scholar F.F. Bruce would say it. He addresses them with respect, just as Peter would tell us to, with gentleness and respect, to give of the hope that we have within us. He calls them religious, and he finds this altar to an unknown God. It is the word from which we get the word agnostic, that word unknown, without knowledge. And how ironic it is, right? Supposedly, the most erudite, the most sophisticated philosophers of Athens had an altar to the unknown God, something they didn't know. They, of course, had that as a safety precaution just in case there was some God. They didn't want to anger some God who might strike the city in the future. But for all their supposed knowledge, they didn't know the one true God. And Paul begins here by proclaiming who God is and what God has done. And he begins here in verse 24. God is the creator. Verse 24. The God who made the world and all things in it. The first thing Paul does is establish that God is the creator. And this is a fundamental, very important truth. God is the creator, the one who made the world and all things in it. This is how the Bible begins. It presumes God and it establishes God, in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Paul doesn't go into some philosophical argument about proofs for the existence of God. He doesn't try to relate on some philosophical level. He begins with the presupposition that God exists and establishes God as the one who created everything. It is a fool, as Psalm 14.1 says, who says in his heart, there is no God. The fact that God is the creator is huge, because if God is the creator which he is, then he has rights over that which he has created. Just as in our lives, we know in our society, our society recognizes that if we create something, we have rights associated with that creation. God is a creator. The beginning chapters of Genesis are not a story, they are biblical truth. I was in Washington, D.C. Like many museums, they promote the theory of evolution and the origins of the universe as have come and come about because of some big bang, some unknown big bang. They promote a godless universe. They do not promote God. They do not promote the creation of the heavens and the earth. Yet this is where Paul begins because this is what is true. Secondly, God is Lord. Verse 24, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth. God is creator. He has the right to sustain. He has the right to destroy. He deserves to be worshipped. He has the right to do whatever he wishes. It is Jesus himself who even said in Matthew eleven twenty-five, you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. God is our Lord, God is our master, God is our king, God is our creator. And God has every right to command as he so chooses. 
Thirdly, God is independent. God is independent. He is creator, he is Lord, he is independent. Does not dwell, verse 24, in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. God is unlike us. God is very much unlike us. He does not need us. He did not create us because he was somehow lonely. God doesn't need anything. God says in Psalm 50, verses 9 through 12, I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains, and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine, and all it contains. God owns all things. Everything in the earth belongs to God. God is independent of us. Psalm 24, 1 tells us, The earth is the Lord's, and all it contains, the world, not only the world, but those who dwell in it. God owns you and I. God is the creator. God is Lord. God does not depend on us. And fourthly, God is the giver of life. God is the giver of life. Since he himself gives to all people, it says in verse 24, 25, life and breath and all things. God is the giver of life. God is the sustainer of life. Is it Jesus Christ who holds all things together, Colossians chapter 1, and therefore he has every right to take life. He has that right. We do not. He is the one who gives us all things. Job 33, verse 4, says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. No one lives, no one breathes without God's sustaining grace of life. So what does that mean? It means there's no place for pride. It means no place for entitlement. Whether one's life is long, whether one's life is short, It is God who has determined our days, and we can give thanks to God for the days that we have, our predetermined days whom God has given to us. It is God who grants to us health. It is also God who brings about sickness. If we are well, whether we are handicapped, whether we are able-bodied, we can give thanks to God, for God is the one who grants to us that which is life. When Moses was objecting to God's call upon his life, the Lord said in Exodus 4.11, Who has made man's mouth? Or who made him mute? Or deaf? Or seeing? Or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Is it not the Lord who has made those who are deaf or blind or seeing? Whatever it is, God says, that he is the one who has made people in whatever way he so chooses. And so, as much as we might be tempted to blame things on others, ourselves, or whatever it may be, God is a God who is sovereign over all things, and it is God who grants to us the grace of life, the grace of health, the grace of our education, the grace of our jobs, the grace of all that we have. And so when God takes it away, there is no right for us to be angry. No right for us to be upset. No right because we are undeserving in the first place. 
It is God who grants to us the ability to learn in school. God who grants to us homes. God who grants to us jobs. God who grants to us money. God who has granted to us children, family, relatives, friends. It is God who owns all things and has granted to us these things. So when God takes them away, we are to humbly give thanks and say, as Job said, when he lost his family, his home, and all of his possessions, he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all of this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. How would we respond if we lost the most important people in our lives, the most important possessions in our lives? Would we bow and worship and say, God has given, God has taken away? Blessed be the name of the Lord. We humble ourselves in worship of God, giving thanks for the time that we have had what we have had. God is creator. God is Lord. God does not depend upon us. God is the giver of life. He is, fifthly, God who made the nations. He made from one man, it says in verse 26, every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Not only was he creator and giver of life, God has made every nation on the face of the earth. There's really only one race, and that is the human race. So there is no place for prejudice between Jew and Gentile, no place for prejudice between ethnicities today, because God is the maker of all. God is the one who has made all nations. So we're not to be hypocritical as some who might be willing to do missions work and reach out and love to people cross-culturally and yet over here in the States not do the same. One testimony from one Mexican student who came to study in the U.S., after having received many short-term missionaries, and many short-term missionaries go to Mexico to minister, but he came over here to the U.S. He had been the recipient of many short-term mission trips from American church groups, and he said, though, in Mexico, they wanted to be my friends because they wanted to do missions to me. When I moved to the United States, no one wanted to be my friend, unquote. Are we consistent in that? When there's an opportunity to reach out, do we show prejudice or discriminate? It's not just based upon one's color or appearance either. There's an article in the Wall Street Journal just earlier this year, or I should say a number of years ago, entitled Accentuating Bias. Most of us assume that, you know, we're tolerant or unprejudiced, but a new study revealed that many people have a hidden bias that they might even not even know against anyone with a foreign accent. Quote, the article reads, quote, the further from native sounding an accent is, the harder we have to work and the less trustworthy we perceive the information to be. It gets worse, quote. Researchers found that the heavier the accent, the more skeptical participants became. In other words, 
If you sound like you're not from around here, your suspicion radar might be on high. Bias is not bias based upon character. It's based upon the fact that somebody's different. Biblical terms, it's showing favoritism towards people who resemble us. No matter what culture we're from, some try to argue that it's natural and therefore it's okay. But the Bible tells us that it is the standard of the scriptures right from wrong. It is a sin to show partiality as Proverbs 28, 21, to show partiality is not good. James 2, 1 and 9 says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So do we justify our personal prejudices by calling it natural rather than seeking what pleases God? Because God is the one who has created all nations, as Paul has said here. God is creator. God is Lord. God does not depend upon us. God is the giver of life in all things. And God has made all nations predetermined, in addition, predetermined authorities. Verse 26. Having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. God has created all nations. He has predetermined their times. He's established their boundaries. That's how God has been in establishing authorities around the world. This year, there's been a lot of news, news in the world about world leaders, about political tensions in countries. All of this brings anxiety and worry to people. But the Word of God reminds us that it is God who has established authorities. Romans 13:1 tells us, For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Romans tells us that it is God who raised up Pharaoh. It is just likewise God raised up the Babylonians, according to Haggai. It is God who raised up the Syrians. It is God who raises up various leaders in the world. And it is God who controls their heart. Proverbs 21, 1 tells us, the, heart, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He directs it like a water course wherever he so chooses. We can trust that God has a plan somehow ultimately trusting in God. God is creator. God is Lord. God is not dependent upon us. God is the giver of all life and all things. And God has made all the nations and established authorities. Next, God desires that people seek him and repent. God desires that people seek him and repent. Verse 27 that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, and even as some of your own poets have said, for we are his children. Why has God done all of these things? Why has God been the one who has granted us all of these good things? To be the one who is in control of all things, who has granted to us life and breath and opportunity that we might see what God has created and turn to God, that we might repent of our sin. Paul quotes here from some of the poets of that day, quotes their own poets. 
Epimenides, the Cretan, as F.F. Bruce notes, wrote, they fashioned a tomb for thee, O holy and high one. The Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, idle bellies, but thou art not dead. Thou livest and abidest forever, for in thee we live and move and have our being, unquote. That's where that quote may have come from. But God is not pantheistic as they might have thought. For Paul says, being the children of God, we not ought to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. God is not in the gold and silver and all of these stones. And as Paul is standing there with the Parthenon on his right and the, and the temple and the philosophers all around him with thousands of idols, and he is saying he is not like all of these gods that you have here. God is very much unlike that. And God knows that you have been worshiping all of these gods that are here. And he is willing, verse 30, to overlook these times of ignorance. And he wants you to know everywhere people should, verse 30, repent and turn to God. Athenians were idolaters and God granted them the message of the truth that they might turn from their idolatry. And he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection to them. God is patient, and you say, God is kind to us all, isn't he? To everyone here, he is kind and tolerant to us all, so patient, so that we can turn from our wickedness and repent. For those that don't know God, he says in Romans 2, 4, and 5, or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness, and tolerance, and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance. But because of your stubbornness, an unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. For those that do not come in their stubbornness and their unwillingness to turn their life over to God, they are storing up the wrath of God that builds up against them. God is patient, desiring to give one freedom from the bondage of sin, the penalty of sin, that they might come and have life. God very well could end our life at any time. And like I mentioned just last week, we learned that Josh Siebert, the young man who came to candidate here two years ago, he was diagnosed just last year, end of last year, with a bone marrow failure, MDS, because of a genetic disease called Fanconi anemia. And in a short five months, he passed away just Thursday. And he left behind Erica and their two children, God gave him 38 good years, and he used a number of those years near the end of his life as a seminary graduate to serve, and he had taken up a senior pastorate in Oregon. Praise God, he could use his life as he did, a life that was likely well-lived for the glory of God. He had a heart that desired to share and teach the Word of God, to teach that which was true. But life is short. God desires that we turn in repentance. 
Why? Because God is bringing judgment. Verse 31, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Divine judgment is coming. And for the Christian, there's no fear of judgment. It's only the judgment of reward. But for those who do not know Christ, there's the judgment of condemnation that comes. For Hebrews 9, 27, inasmuch as it appointed for men to die once, and then comes the judgment. Judgment is coming. will not always be grace. R.C. Sproul, when he was teaching his class, one of the first day of teaching his class of 250 college freshmen, explained that the assignments would be given in three term papers. Each paper was going to be due at the end of September, end of October, end of November. And he clearly stated that there would be no extensions except for medical reasons to each of these deadlines. Out of those 250 students at the very first paper, 225 turned them in on time, and then there were 25 that were remorseful and shaken, saying, we're sorry, we didn't make the proper adjustments from high school coming on into college, but we do promise to do better next time. And he bowed to their pleas of mercy, and he gave them an extension, but warned them not to be late when it came to October's paper. When October rolled around, out of that 250 students, there were 200 that turned them in on time, and 50 students showed up empty-handed. And they said, oh, please, they begged. It was homecoming weekend, and we ran out of time. R.C. Sproul, once more, he relented and warned them, this is it, no excuses, next time you get an F. End of November came, and out of that 250 students, 100 students turned in their papers, and the rest told Sproul, we'll get it in soon. He said, sorry, it's too late now. You get an F. The students howled in protest. That's not fair. Okay, Sproul said, you want justice, do you? Here's what is just. You'll get an F for all three papers that were late. That was the rule, right? That's how we often take God's mercy, God's grace. We take it for granted that God has not struck us with a penalty or punishment right away, as might he do in the Old Testament. We assume upon and presume upon God's grace, but when justice comes, because judgment will come, when Christ comes, we're unprepared. It comes as a shock, and people cry. That's not fair. God is patient, desiring that we repent. How will we respond? Well, these Athenians, some responded, others jeered, others were open. That's how it was. Some mocked, it says it sneered. Some said, we'll hear again, verse 32. Others, a few others, 34, believed. No doubt, some of them, they thought they knew better. But this account here of the 30,000 plus idols or whatever it was in Athens is a vivid illustration of people, isn't it? Vivid illustration for us because the world has all sorts of idols, all sorts of idols. We might not be covered with idols from wall to wall here, but there are idols that people have that they worship, idols of success, idols of accomplishment, idols of entertainment, 
how they love to be entertained. Idols of money, power, idols of status, idols of scholarly degrees, idols of accomplishments and their home or their cars that they love and their grades, pop stars or talents. They idolize sports or maybe they idolize their past glory days because that's all they talk about. Literally thousands of idols of the heart that people worship. Every idol that exists, every idol that exists needs to be fed. So the question for us is, is God first in your life? Or do you have idols in your own heart that you worship? And let me put it this way. What is it that you are willing to sin for in order to get? What is it that you are willing to sin for that you order that you want to get? Maybe you idolize money, so you decide, well, for that house remodel, you're not going to get the required permits. Maybe you idolize your children, so doing things that God says comes always second. Maybe you idolize yourself, so you don't want people not to like you, so you rarely, if ever, tell people you're a Christian. Maybe you idolize peace and quiet, and so you become angry when your family disturbs that peace and quiet that you so desperately want. Maybe you idolize other things. What is it that you want so badly that you are willing to sin in order to get? Those are the idols of your heart. The thing about idols is that they bring temporary satisfaction. They'll satisfy for a little bit. And then like a roller coaster, you'll want that greater thrill the next time, the greater thrill the next time, the greater thrill the next time, and you'll continually feed that idol of the heart. And that is why Jesus, when he came to the woman at the well, offered her water that would satisfy her soul, not the physical water that would make her thirsty again like any other idol would. As a Christian, we're freed from the bondage of idolatry of sin and have the power to find our satisfaction because of Christ to find that satisfaction in the true and living God. When we realize that the God we worship is the God who is the creator, God who is Lord, God who does not depend upon us, God who is the giver of our life that we might be grateful, God who made the nations such that there's no prejudice, and God who is so very patient with us that each and every time we can come with a repentant heart Desiring those who have never come to turn to him in faith. Because why? Judgment will come for those who don't know him. We pray that that might be our message to a world that needs him as well. Let's pray. Father in heaven, so many idols in this world that seek to draw us away from you. Oh God, we pray, may we humble ourselves before your throne of grace, asking, oh God, for your great forgiveness, for we are weak, and it is by grace that we find strength to do that which is pleasing to you. We desire to worship you wholeheartedly, and as we do, oh God, may you be pleased. In Jesus' name.